Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And Adam, it is Christmas time, and so today we are digging into one of my favorite holiday movies. You know, when I need to get into that mood for Christmas, when I need to get my presents wrapped, when everyone else goes to bed and I just need to set the scene, I put on that classic 1988 John McTiernan film, Die Hard. You and me both, Matt. You and so today, both. alongside our special guest, Jenny Peace, we are going all in, buddy. yippee Kaye. What can Die Hard teach us about life and ministry and theology in the world? and Christmas. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Die Hard for the Christmas Eve lectionary, which will be Monday, December 24th, if you don't know the day of Christmas Eve, which will be year C. In our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share just another little preacher thought that each of us has on something else we're reading or watching or following. But before we get into our conversation, I want to introduce Jenny Peace. Jenny taught for 10 years at Andover Newton as the professor of interfaith there. She became my friend when we worked together. She was my colleague, and we would often walk down this long hill to go and get coffee where we would talk about all manner of weird things. Uh, she is also my favorite potter. I like to think of her as my personal potter. She she makes me mugs, which is incredible. I drink coffee from a mug that Jenny makes nearly every morning. Uh, she also consults on interfaith stuff around the country and makes mead and is my favorite contrarian. Jenny, thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to be here with both of you, Matt and Adam. I'm looking forward to being the contrarian in our discussion about Die Hard and Wait, perhaps you don't, Christmas. We'll you, see. Don't wrap, you don't wrap presents to Die Hard, Jenny? I do not wrap presents to Die Hard. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. In fact, I think I was telling you, Adam, every time I watch it, it kind of goes down in my ratings just a little bit. Sorry to tell y'all. <laughs> no. Beautiful. Well, so to both of you, I had a little bit of fun with IMDb this morning as a way to try to set up this movie. Going into 1988, Bruce Willis was a comedian who was best known for his role on Moonlighting. Alan Rickman was totally unknown in the States. He was a British character actor whose previous credit on IMDb is the 1985 BBC sitcom Girls on Top. Reginald Veljohnson, yeah, Re Reginald Veljohnson, we, we have actually seen before on this show. Reginald Veljohnson plays jail guard in Ghostbusters, but we are still a year away from his breakout work on Family Matters. And, but today on IMDb, the first film highlighted for each of them is Die Hard. John McTiernan's blockbuster action movie about a guy and some terrorists and a skyscraper on Christmas Eve. A movie that fundamentally defined its genre for a generation to come. I am old enough to remember the decade after it came out when every action movie was just billed as Die Hard on a plane, or Die Hard on a bus, or Die Hard on a boat, or Die Hard at an airport, which is just Die Hard 2. And we can talk about what makes this movie so definitional, but we're also talking about it today because this movie shows up every year in the rotation of Christmas movies, and every year it prompts a lot online about whether Die Hard is properly a Christmas movie, and so we are going straight in for it. We've got to settle this one once and for all. Jenny, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Absolutely not a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that idea was just a clever premise for getting folks in this building alone on Christmas Eve. They wanted to get a group of people stranded in a building. So they came up with this idea. They were there for a Christmas party. And one of the things that struck me as I watched this film, the only time anything is mentioned about God or Jesus or Mary, they all come up in the film only in the context of swear words uttered by our supposed hero. So, yeah, I vote no. I think the, the only way in which it's talking about Christmas is Christmas as this commercialized, uh, you know, Scrooge and stockings and sort of the popularized commercial Christmas. There's nothing 
remotely Christmassy for me as a Christian in this film. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Matt, what about you? Lay it out. What do you think? Well, I think I think it depends on what a Christmas movie is. I mean, I, I feel like this is the 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 kind of underneath conversation inside the perennial question of whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie is that I'm not entirely sure what a Christmas movie is. So I th- I think about Christmas movies as um as a genre. I th- I go back to like old film school conversations about how we define what a genre is. Um, so the the kind of one of the classical approaches is to think about the semantics of a genre and the syntax and the syntax of a genre. So like the semantics of a genre is like the a western movie. You know, it's a western because there's cowboys and there's horses and six shooters or something like that. But the the syntax of a western would be like uh, negotiations around land or around family or around preservation of honor or things like kind of these themes that arise in a Western. Uh, I think about that with Christmas. So like this movie clearly has a bunch of semantics of Christmas. It has sleigh bells. It has Christmas music, sort of. It has a Santa who comes down a chimney of sorts. It has a tree, even though that tree lights on fire. It takes place on December 24th. It's got like those pieces and it's kind of got some of the syntax stuff. If you, depending on what the syntax of Christmas is, it's got like family relationships that get repaired, sort of. It's got um, the Reginald Fell Johnson's character who kind of finds himself in ways. It's it's got these weird things that are similar to what we get in a bunch of other kind of Hallmark family Christmas stuff, and uh-huh. that pushes the question of like. Do those movies also count as Christmas movies? What is what is the syntax that we want for a Christmas movie? Uh, I think it even kind of pushes what Christmas is a little bit. Um, so that's that's kind of where I am. What 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 about for you, Adam? Yeah, I don't know. I I I appreciate both of your comments. I think you're both beginning to turn around. Like, how do we define Christmas movie? Where does it where does it come from? And I. I think if we were all choose what we see as a sort of paradigmatic Christmas movie, that would actually help us begin to define um, some of the categories. But for me, as I, as I watched this, the thing that kept standing out to me with respect to its Christmasness is um, it's, it's a movie about, about trying to figure out what's real. So there are all of these like, they're all of these masks that everybody wears. Like for a good portion of the movie, John McClane, the hero goes by a different name to most people. He goes by Roy Rogers and uh, Bonnie Bedelia, the, the, the Holly Gennaro slash McClane character has a different name. And, and at one point Hans Gruber, the terrorist who's not a terrorist, he's actually an exceptional thief. Uh, they all have different ideas about, or they're all posing as different things. At at one point, Alan Rickman does an amazing American accent, so just so that he can pretend that he's not Hans Gruber, so that he can confuse John McClane. And so there's there's a lot about um, about identity and trying to figure out who, who's who's real. But moreover, what tests do we use to get to the truth of something? Um, and throughout the movie, everyone is playing to some sort of script. And this allows Hans Gruber to actually begin to devise a plan to steal all of this stuff because he can um, predict how the police are going to operate, except he can't predict how John McClane is going to operate. And John McClane is this like little agent of chaos that is designed to destroy um, all of the ways in which the script can be predicted. And so by destroying the script, John McClane is able to save Christmas. That's my that's my argument for whether or not this is a Christmas movie. If it is a Christmas movie, it's because John McCain, John McClane is destroying Christmas in order that we might have Christmas. And I think he does that by like improvisation. And and as I think about this as someone who thinks about worship a lot, I wonder like a Christmas Eve service is is probably the most scripted service of the year. Um, the Christmas Eve services that I go to are sacrosanct. You don't change them. You don't do anything new. 
and for the love of God, there is no sort of like improvisational moment. Everything is like very finely curated and predictable. And I wonder if at the end of the day, that is actually what is um, getting in the way of under, of us understanding Christmas in part because the incarnation was such an unpredictable and crazy thing. Um, so if Die Hard is a Christmas movie, it is the Judas of Christmas movies. It is the movie that is trying to destroy Christmas movies in order that we might actually find Christmas. That's my hot take. Jenny, what do you think about that take? Wow. I Fascinating. And I think both of you saw lines of depth in this film that just um, that I did not see because <laughs> my dominant lens while I was watching this film was around models of masculinity and the story of John's potentially lost manhood, which he recovers and then reclaims. So you get you get John at the beginning of the film on the plane, gripping the hand, you know, the sides. He's a little scared of flying. He comes off the plane with a big teddy bear. He gets this tip about how to avoid jet lag by scrunching his bare toes on the rug. Like these are not classic signs of uh, a strong masculinity, right? So he comes into this Christmas party, he's hugged and kissed by a man. He says, Jesus effing LA. He, he kind of, he, he's giving us all these signs and, and signals about what masculinity is and isn't. Oh yeah, his, his wife didn't, has changed her name back to her. His wife uh, Right, that's the big name. one. That's the dominant no. thing they talk about from the beginning to mm -hmm. the end of that film is her changing her name. And at the end, after he's proved his masculinity through all these feats of strength as he gets progressively um, you know, as we see more and more of his nude body, as his his tank top disappears, um, and, and at the very end, his masculinity assured by killing all these robbers. You know, they turn out to be robbers, not terrorists, and he's the cop. So it's sort of a a cop and robber show, in my opinion. At the end, he you know the 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 prize is that his wife returns to her rightful place with his name by his side, reaffirming that he's the man of the house. And so I, I'd, I'd see this much more like a Western or a cop show. Um, the Christmas piece, to me, that's just, you know, fun background music, so to speak. Gives you a reason to, you know, have that Santa hat on the guy who comes down the elevator and um, make it a little bit creepier. Yeah, but so it provides color. It, I mean, the, the it, crazy two yeah. th thing, Jenny, is that there's... The premise of this movie, I mean, to your point, requires them to have a Christmas party late into the evening on Christmas Eve. Yeah, unlikely. you know, like, like, <laughs> what in the world? Who, who made that decision? What, like, what person in HR is like, well, when are we going to have the Christmas party? Well, but that reaffirms we got to have it on the twenty fourth. <laughs> cultural, this are this uh, corporate culture, right? I mean, they're. They're saying that Christmas is about the big bonuses and the big Christmas party at your office. It's not about going to Christmas Eve services. There's no, there are no religious references to Christmas anywhere in this movie. It's all very much a cultural holiday and celebration. And there's even that great line where Bruce Willis's character talks to the head of the corporation and said, I didn't know you celebrated Christmas in Japan. He's like, you know, we're flexible. So it's it's a convenience. And I think if there is a Christmas movie story in here for me, it's actually a kind of finger pointing at the culture of consumerism. And, you know, the, even Hans, the, the terrorist, is pointing out the though he is himself a robber, he's pointing out the greed of corporate America as his supposed motivation. And, and if I were to, you know, use this in a sermon or something, for example, that inversion of of what Christmas has become in a consumer culture is is probably where I would begin. I, just at, at the risk of myself then being a little contrarian, I think by your definition of Christmas movie, there actually aren't that many Christmas movies, and which may be okay. the case. But I, but I I think there's a, actually most of the boilerplate Christmas movies that we define as Christmas movies or will be readily accept as Christmas movies have as their stakes, not like something that emerges from the, at, at this point in time, like the Christian story of 
of, of nativity and incarnation, but these kind of broad themes around family reconciliation and love and romantic interest and people who find each other or reclaim something about themselves. There's, there's that, a, a little bit of that, yeah. that Christmas Carol thread that is still percolating through us, not the broader social critique Dickens, but the like, you know, uh, hard up guy who opens his heart because it's Christmas thread is still very much with us. And I think kind of defines the genre in a way. And, and in that sense, I, I do think that the, the reconciliation between McLean and his wife is really played here as kind of a Christmassy reconciliation. Now, to be sure, it is also has as its background all of that hypermasculine stuff you're talking about. And when I'm more than happy to swim in those waters, but I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Yeah, I, I would accept that point. I think what's important, though, is to sort of unpack a little bit what success looks like in this film and for whom it's success. You know, the, there's this great line where Holly is saying, I know exactly what our marriage means in your definition. You know, there's a very yeah. sharp line that she gets. That's probably my favorite line she has in the film. He's asking her to come back into a kind of traditional uh image of marriage and there's some tacit acceptance of that that he's somehow through his feats of action and feats of violence earned the right to to be her husband again and i just you know i think we can we can accept if we accept the premise of the movie and the the sort of definitions of the movie then it's all a nice ending but if you start pulling the threads out a little bit the message becomes a little more nefarious, frankly, and a little more um, repressive of both, I think, women and their growing sense of what equality in a marriage looks like. And also, you know, I was really struck when I was looking back at what was happening culturally, you know, uh, 1987 was the first national coming out day. And uh, the year that followed the first March on Washington for lesbian and gay rights. And there's definitely another uh, sort of subtle and not so subtle homophobic theme that weaves through this film if you watch it with that lens. So to me, that happy ending comes at quite a cost. And, and to both of your points, there's Matt, you said earlier, like what what are some of the semantics of a Christmas movie? One of the semantics is children, right? I, I think children show up almost always in a Christmas movie and they have a very, very small part to play in this movie. Um, um, they are mostly absent. The relationship between Holly and uh, John is centralized, but we get the sense that, that both of these people aren't parents. I mean, which is the, this, the interesting thing, which is they're, they exist for each other. But I can't help but thinking that they're both terrible parents. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there is a moment. Yeah. yeah, I think there is a moment of parenthood in the movie. And it's at the very end when Holly smacks the reporter. Right? And I think that's right. what the, that that's. Right. And it's it's because you know, you're right. She's she's she's, she's, like she's, she's, she's not she's not a parent world. because her her acceptance of this corporate professional female life has stripped her of her ability to be a mother in the appropriate way. I mean, that, that, that's that's the I think the, the conservative argument here. And I think it's being made yeah. pretty loudly and only at the end when she reaccepts her married name and when the family has been restored to its rightful place, can she do the mama bear thing, which is to take that reporter and knock him down a peg. I think that's I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's regressive in its own way. I mean, to to like she's she's finally taken the name and therefore she can now be the mother again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that is so loud and clear. You accept the rules of this game and you get all the nice things back again. Right. And that's what I find. So this is why the movie drops, in my opinion, every time I watch it. Like the first time I watched it, I was Bruce Willis in the movie. And, you know, we all watch movies thinking we're the hero. So there's this funny thing you do if you're a woman, for example, putting yourself often in the shoes of these male protagonists who are the heroes. And then you're then you're reminded at various points in the film, no, you're the passive hostage. You're the pregnant lady who can't, you know, take herself to the restroom. You're the you're the victim. You're not you're not the hero. And I think 
I'm as the older I get, the just more tired I become of having to put myself in the shoes of protagonists who are just reaffirming my secondary role in 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 the sort of gender politics of the country. Well, and there's this there's this crazy part in the movie, and it and it wasn't affecting the first hundred times that I've seen this movie, but in watching it this time, there's the moment where he's he's talking. John McClane is is talking to the Reginald Bell Johnson character, the sergeant, and is saying, you know, I need you to tell Holly something. And and he ends yeah. up saying, um, you know, I've been a jerk. And he's doing this sort of this moment of repentance, which is, I mean, he plays it as sincere and he's actually a pretty good actor in this movie. Um, he's And he said, I should have been behind her. And it was this, this understanding that he should have supported his wife in her um, in her career, which is the one moment of its sort of progressivism before it sort of reverts back to a a, a pretty regressive understanding of gender identity in the country. Um, but then he says, I, she's heard me say I love you a thousand times, but she's never heard me say I'm sorry. Right. And I was like, I was like, my dude, I mean, I think I've located why your relationship went sour, man. Like, <laughs> like, I got, I think yep. I figured it out because you, you don't seem to understand how relationships work. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel bad here. I feel like, again, like I'm ruining Die Hard for Die Hard fans, but it just, it's so hard to look back at these movies from the eighties and such and try to, using the lens we have today where we're, you know, post Black Lives Matter or in the midst of, in the midst of the Me Too movement, it just reads so differently. I, I think it's impossible to see these films with sort of the eyes we might've had in the 1980s when they first came out. So I, I'm always challenged by thinking about when you're, when you're taking a film like this and you're thinking about it for today, what, how much do you focus on the cultural context of that moment and the backdrop of the film and what was happening versus where we are now. And I think those two contexts are pretty dramatically different when it comes to all these issues we're talking about with gender and masculinity and all of that. I mean, for us, that, that's a really good question, Jenny. And it's not one that is just reserved for movies from the 80s. I mean, we had a conversation about this in Buster Scruggs, the, the film that we last talked about with respect to its depictions of Native Americans in a Western genre. And I, I've found that, that that stuff's on the table. It has to be on the table. And, um, and it can be a conversation that drives the bus. It can be a secondary conversation. Um, you just have to make the terms of the conversation um, clear. <laughs> Okay, so I'm curious, as we've talked a little bit about representational issues here, we've talked a lot about John and Holly, that one of the, but, but the character that lives on in infamy from this movie, even more than them, is Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber. Uh, does that stereotype wash any more cleanly than the other ones, or are, are we still just totally in love with, with Rickman's villain here? Adam, how does, how does Gruber live for you? Well, I mean, so he's, he's, Infamous in his own way. I mean, as I was doing a little bit of research myself for this movie, when they released Die Hard in Germany, they made him uh, an Irish nationalist. <laughs> ah. um, in part because the culture there was having a lot of trouble with some um, some radical German terrorists, and they were just weary of that, and so they just made it another country's terrorist, basically. Which um, is another film school article waiting to be written, right? Which is how how the terrorism, uh, how our ideas in the United States about other people's terrorists play in those actual countries would be a really fascinating thing to read. Uh, but what I think is so interesting about Hans Gruber is um, is he shows up, you know, and he shows up wearing a suit. And he shows up talking to Nakatomi about like these expensive suits that he wears. And he comes in and the thing that he has that was sort of unique is he's slight, but he's he's smart. And that's a pretty typical trope. But then he's ruthless 
and you get that in the first scene with Nakatomi where he ends up shooting him. And you you realize, oh, this this person is playing by a completely different set of conventions at this point. Um, I think he he takes on his fullest life when he does his American accent, which um, which apparently was this sort of improvised scene later that they added um, in part because it gives you some indication that he himself has these stereotypes and tropes that he plays with. And um, and at the end of the movie, right before he dies, he says, you know, this is not the Western. Um, and he seems to have some deep insight into American culture while also not totally realizing that he is in an American movie. Like, it is the Western. He is going to die. Um, and so there is, this, like, just as a villain... They've written him with a sort of self-reflection that is pretty uncommon, and it was especially uncommon at this time in film, uh, in like action movie history, where the villains were kind of underdeveloped and uninteresting, and um, and you made up for that in your film by just having a lot of people to kill. Uh, this is a smaller group of people to kill, but a more outsized <laughs> final villain, and that I think was actually a pretty important addition to the sort of action film canon in the 80s especially the late 80s yeah fascinating i the it's interesting i kind of read uh the character of hans through the lens of class predominantly so he's classically educated he right. he's yes. politely to mr cowboy even when he's really wants to kill him and in contrast john mcclain is sort of your He's a he's a cop from New York. Like that is his identity. And he's a regular guy. And that even though the white tank top that he's wearing at the beginning is sort of a trope for a uh, working class guy. Yeah, he, he rides in the front of the limo on the way in. He rides in the front of the limo. I mean, we get marker after marker that John is regular guy and Hans is sort of this educated elitist um, fellow who speaks well and wears expensive suits. And I think they're drawing a parallel between the sort of corporate greed of, of, of companies like the, like the, uh, what's the Naka, how did, Nakatomi. Sorry. Yeah. The Nakatomi corporation. And then the, the just blatant greed of, of robbers and thieves like Hans uh, Gruber. So they're trying to draw a parallel there. And I think they're sort of stoking this kind of classist um, tension between you know, the beat cops and the elitists and the, who's greedy and who's who's going to save us. Right. And in that sense, I mean, it, it, it ties back to the conversation about masculinity as well, because the 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 kind of real hyper masculine self there necessarily has to be this kind of blue collar figure. It would yeah. it wouldn't be possible for Hans Gruber as this this upper class European uh, kind of globalist uh, villain to also be hard-bodied and muscle-ripped and you know all of those kind of hyper-masculine tropes they're just in conflict with one another is the way that the film plays with those those basic stereotypes yeah Yeah, with a a dash of xenophobia in there with with sort of asian 1980 asian panic that's going on exactly sure Sure. Right. Japan was the big economic power in the 80s. That's who we thought were, was going to sort of take over the global economy. That was a big anxiety in the U.S. at that point. And I was struck, too, by how all the well, the terrorists were sort of like European in, an, in a kind of weird, undifferentiated way. I mean, I heard right. yes. I heard German, Italian and French in the in the span of that film that they were speaking to each other. And that really just sort of cracked me up. And they all, you know, more often than not, they had the long sort of wavy hair. There was a sort of a, a right. feminization of the of the of these villains in a way that I thought also speaks to this sort of homophobic thread in the movie. Um, yeah, they all look like they could be playing backup bass for some kind of hair metal band. <laughs> exactly. And we, and we know they're European because of their brand of cigarettes, too, which is also like an interesting, an interesting. Trip. Well, and, but, and like their tea back tank tops, right? They're not wearing that sort of undershirt tank top. They're wearing the other type of or a turtleneck, I think, at some right. point. <laughs> yeah, right. And little continuity point did anyone notice how the the tank top that bruce willis wears goes from white to bloodied to khaki colored to missing 
I, I was just fascinated by what was happening to his shirt through that movie. <laughs> so, Jenny, given given a lot of the research that you've done on um, on medieval mystics, like, what do you make of the stigmata of Bruce Willis in this movie? <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, that's something I did not think at all about. Tell me what you thought, Adam, first, and then I'll see if I can respond. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just funny that there 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 is some interesting imagery that's being pulled from the larger sort of religious world. And one of these is bloody feet, you know, that, that he's sort of walking around. Like he, he is, he is increasingly getting shot and pierced and broken. And, um, and that, that is part of what we ask for from the types of saviors or heroes that, um, that were, that, that we want to follow. And the fact that it, that the body can take it is I think a really interesting intersection where sort of the, the body of Christ and the, and the body of the hyper-masculine hero finds some very strange synergy within the culture, which is that, you know, that they're both being broken and the fact that they can be broken and yet survive or rise or be resurrected is a, um, a sign of their power of their strength of ultimately their masculinity. Um, so I, I, this reminds me of like when I was growing up in like the evangelical subculture of which I was a part, there were always these, um, shirts that said the Lord's gym. And then it said Ah. his pain, your gain. Wow. Which was this takeoff on Gold's Gym, which was like no pain, no gain or something like that, which was their slogan, which so like there has always been within the Christian subculture, this idea that like the broken body of Christ is actually a very masculine thing. Yeah, that's powerful. I, I think you, the the larger theological question that that sort of reflection raises for me is what makes a savior and what does the Messiah look like? I was thinking about this as, you know, if if we imagine the Messiah's return, will will the Messiah look more like Bruce Willis or will the Messiah look more like a transgender refugee, for example? You know, I think we have so conflated a certain image of heroism with with what makes a savior that we we do run the danger of creating an idol of this image that is completely incompatible with the passages we read around this time of year of a baby born in a manger because there's no room even in the inn. You know, it's just striking to me how we can get so far afield from what I understand as the model of power that we see when we think about Jesus. Um, But it's striking. Yeah. Jenny, I think that's a really good transition for us to begin talking about the scripture passages, the lectionary passages for Christmas Eve. But before we do, we want to say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. There's a really interesting article about Arvo Part, who's a, um, I think I'm saying that right. I, I, I've i seen that name written a million times, but I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, about who is a composer who writes incredible sacred music and um, a really thoughtful article about his work. Uh, Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. I also wrote a book. If you are looking for uh, nice gifts to give to the theologically and ministerially minded in your family or friendships, um, go buy it. It's called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. Uh, You can buy it at Amazon or ask your local bookstore to order it. All right. So as uh, Jenny was pointing us there, let's circle up to preaching a little bit. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we're going to look at some of these passages for Christmas Eve, Advent 2, which includes the... uh, the second chapter of Luke's gospel, the traditional story of the nativity there. We've got Isaiah's prophecy about the son born to us. We've got some pieces from Psalm 96 and a passage from Titus, which I think will be very popular from the pulpit on Christmas Eve. (laughs) So Jenny, as you've begun to dig into this, as you look at these passages, how does, tell us some more, how does Die Hard help you resonate or not with with the kind of the crux of, of these messages? 
Yeah, well, I think for me, I mean, it was a little bit of a hard fit, but I started thinking about Die Hard as something my mother used to call negative witnesses to the truth. So whenever we wanted to watch a movie that she didn't like, <laughs> she would sometime go along with it, but she would call it a negative witness to the truth. So this is what you don't want to do or you don't want to be like. And so I was reading through Psalm 96, for example, and thinking, where would I, where could I land that would have any linkage between this passage and the film. And I came across verse five, which says, for all the gods of the nations are idols. And I think this is where I stopped and thought, you know, Die Hard is a great example of, of sort of some of our idols. Who is going to save us? Who is, who is victim? Who is hero? Who is villain? And we have such set and binary uh, ideas and images, like quite literal images, like white male bodies are are, are heroes in, in many of these films and in Die Hard, certainly. And those are perfect places for us to really dig in and examine and ask ourselves, what is the counter narrative that we read about in the Bible? What are What are some of these idols? How did they develop? How can we turn away from them? How can we ask about the alternative model of, of uh, what it means to be saved and what a Messiah looks like by going back to these passages and really brooding over the fact, the, the, the narrative of the birth in Luke, the fact that this, this child is born in anonymity in a, in a manger, you know, that there's no, uh, you know, there's, this is not the birth of a great king in the traditional understanding of what that would look like. And I think that is just an incredible inheritance. That narrative for me is such an important starting place for my whole understanding of this tradition. Um, we don't get the, the Bruce Willis hero, king, cowboy, victor. We get the baby wrapped in strips of, you know, leftover cloth in a little stable. I love that. I think that's a powerful starting point for juxtaposing images of what it means to really think about a savior. I think that's such a good um, a good point, Jenny, in part because I, I think every year, if someone is preaching on Christmas Eve, they're trying to figure out how to refresh this uh, story, right? How to, how to like retrieve what feels like the scandal and the sort of inversion of it all. And yeah. in, part what they're fighting against is all of these images of of what counts as victory what counts as the sort of appropriate narrative for the people that we want to follow and um and it's hard to refresh it each year it's hard to get people to not just tame this story right and i think if if anything the 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 trope of an action movie is you know there is chaos but then the chaos is vanquished and that chaos is like it, it is put back into place and everything is put back in its right order. And in many ways, this, this Christmas story is asking for a new order. It is promoting something that will inevitably feel like chaos to people if they aren't aware that, that this chaos is actually the way to truth and peace. And I think some of that plays on some of the themes that show up in the Isaiah 9 reading, too. I mean, I think th- this uh, this child born to us, son given to us passage is is so basic and so canonical to our Christmas Eve and Lessons and Carols traditions. And I think we find in there some of these um, some of these same themes about that, that, that set up the, the expectation of what um salvation is going to look like for Israel walking in darkness. It's got, it, it, and, and it seems to hold both of those um, edges at the same time. I mean, there is a lot of redemptive violence in this passage. The the boots yes. of the tramping warriors, the garments rolled in blood, burned as fuel for the fire. You yes. can figure out whether or not you include that verse in your lessons and carol service or not. Some folks just <laughs> drop it entirely. Uh, you know, there's a, the promise of the leader or the the saving God who is who, who is going to save people through the destruction of the enemy, uh, which is you know very much at play, obviously in Die Hard as Christmas, and then the child born, the son given, who is going to have 
all of these names that are attributed to other ancient Near East gods and kings. He's got all of them, plus one, whatever the other people say. Uh, and there's this endless peace, but it's not clear in this text in and of itself whether that peace is born through the kind of... Um, the, the the kind of service and and uh and humility and grace that we see rendered in the Luke story or whether it still carries with it that that sense of um of power and might and and kind of violence that shows up in the first half of the passage. And so I, I see I think you're getting both ends of that that anxiety over what is this Messiah really supposed to look like. That's fascinating. Just to piggyback one point on that from from Isaiah, that passage, the verse that stood out to me most strongly was for all the boots of the tramp tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. It's a lot of interesting ways to read that passage. And yeah. when I was putting that up against what what happens in Die Hard, I, to me, it was it was a repudiation of that kind of culture of violence that this that we will take what was used for violence and force and the and the remnants of that the blood left on the garments and turn it into fuel for fire which warms which heats which cooks so there's a kind of transformation uh you know I, it's always interesting how we want to read these passages I always go to the idea, you know, we have this wonderful counselor, this prince of peace. We have people reacting with fear to the story. And the angels are continually saying, no, I bring you good tidings of great joy. This is not like, do not be afraid. And I think our reactions to power are, understandably, fear. But the passage and the refrain in these passages for me is fear not, because this is a different kind of power. This is power that heals and restores and re rejoins. This is not power that tramples down or, you know, leaves fields of blood or burns the whole building to the ground <laughs> as in, or blows up the building as in Die Hard. So, so I, so I have a, I have a third reading, which is yeah. I mean, a little bit of both. I think um, I, I, I actually wrote about this passage for Working Preacher um, this year and um, the Isaiah passage and the way that I was reading that initial war imagery was that there that the that the poet or the 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 song that is coming in Isaiah 9 is beginning with what are typical images of what war victory looks like and in it, you know the darkness has been lifted so it begins the prophecy actually begins with this image of darkness a nation walked in great darkness um, and then suddenly the darkness lifts and they realize that they've won that the the fog of war is gone and and at the end of it they they are able to take the plunder they get to break the rods of their previous enemies and the boots and the garments of all the casualties are burned in what i sort of understood as a victory pyre like a big a fire that um for celebration of 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 the war being won and then <clears throat> very intentionally this what seems like a very traditional victory song, right? It has followed all of the tropes of um, of a, a war chant, a war hymn, um, is interrupted by the word child. And says, for a child has been born for us. And suddenly now we have to re uh, reinterpret everything that's come before because this is not actually a war song. This is not, uh, this is not a victory won by military might or by the ingenious strategy of generals. It's um, it's peace brought by the by a small child, and that ought to like bring us up short. And if Die Hard doesn't do that, right? Die Hard is the victory song. There is no moment where the child interrupts and inverts the the whole system, the whole narrative, the genre itself. And I mean, if we continue to talk about this, whether or not it's a Christmas story or a Christmas movie. Maybe one of the things that I want in a Christmas movie is I want it to interrupt our expectations of it so that we see something different, because I think that's what Isaiah is doing in this um, in this particular passage. I think he's he's pressing us into something that feels very familiar and then it almost 
immediately interrupting it with some new inverted vision of the world. Well, I think that is a really fabulous place to end this conversation on. And Jenny, I just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to be with us and for uh, being the contrarian to our diehard fanboyism and appreciate you taking the time. It was my great pleasure. I will talk about Die Hard any day. I just might not watch it again. (laughs) (laughs) Next time, we're going to talk about Commando with you. We'll do the whole John McTiernan uh, (laughs) uh, canon here. We get that. We get Rollerball. Oh, Thomas Crown Affair is a pretty good one. Thomas Crown Affair is pretty good. Yeah. So thanks, Jenny. A lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Well, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Well, Adam, the the person who walked in a land of deep darkness has seen a great light. (laughs) I can't wait to hear what it is. Uh, on the last show, I in, in my post that I lamented just the kind of occasioned by the end of Filmstruck, I was lamenting the loss of access and how difficult it is to have the deep archive of film and media that I think was formative for both of us in a, in a digital streaming age where things come and go so quickly and it's hard to find movies you want to, from from the deep cuts sometimes. Uh, and then I, and since then, I have discovered a new thing, which is called Canopy, and I want to evangelize about it. Um, uh, canopy, spelled with a K, is not a replacement for Filmstruck, but it is a really good tool for access. And it has some of the same problems of any streaming tool, of course. It's not, not quite the same thing, but it's a good uh, arrow in the quiver. Uh, canopy is functionally a streaming version of the movie rental shelf at your local library, which is, in fact, what, specifically what it's supposed to be. It is, it is an app that you access with your library card. And that app is used on iOS devices, Android devices, Roku, whatever. I think if you've got some kind of streaming setup in your house, this will work on it. You plug in your library card information, and then your library has probably subscribed to some level of Canopy service. So here with my public library card, I got a tier that had a bunch of A24 films on it, like Lady Bird, First Reformed, A24 is making some of the great independent cinema of the last couple of years. A um, bunch of Criterion Collection stuff. I sat and watched a beautiful uh, streaming cut of Umbrellas of Cherbourg. A uh, bunch of docs <laughs> and other classics. Uh, it works really well. It's, it, it, it works better than a lot of the, like, kind of made for library stuff that I've seen in the past. Uh, and so I, I just, I was very glad to discover this thing. Um, you just need a library card and I kind of love libraries. So that's my post, Lou Adam. Uh, I love libraries too. I'm, I, I'm going to go and check this out with my local library. We've got a pretty good local library where I'm at. So I'm, I'm excited to see what I can, what I can rent from this. Uh, okay. So here's my post, Lou. Like every <laughs> side note, side note. If you really want our like film nerdy bona fides, here here they are, people. It always comes in the uh, in the post loops. Uh, so here's here's what I'm interested in, Matt. You know that uh, I went and saw Roma in a theater. On, yeah, so did uh, I last week. And yeah. so we we were texting back and forth because uh, both of us had the opportunity to go and see this film on a large large screen that had great digital sound that was able to sort of capture just the, the, I mean, the stunning photography of this movie, which is shot in black and white is it is an Alfonso Cuaron movie. It's um, it is notable for the fact that it is also now streaming on Netflix, which um, means that you can go watch it right now. And I think tangentially, they also decided to, release it in the theaters in part for some Oscar consideration, but um, moreover, because it is a great way to see this movie. It is, um, if you can see it in the theater, I would encourage you to do that, if only because it is a sort of immersive experience that requires you to sit and and let it guide you. I, my my one great fear about this this movie being on Netflix is that its pace is 
um, it's slow enough that you might get tempted to like bring a second screen into your viewing experience, like start looking at your phone or, you know, pausing too much to go and do other things. And it's this movie works much better when you just sit with it and let it let it do its thing because it is a slow burn and it and but it burns really hot and really bright if you let it. Um, so I would say go and watch Roma, even if it's on Netflix, watch Roma, but but prepare yourself because it's going to it's going to ask of you. Um, I also would ask you to watch it because there's a pretty good chance that Matt and I are going to want to talk about it come the new year. Because it is, I think we both agree, a, a masterpiece and is some of the best work that Quaron has ever done. The fact that he's done it sort of late in life and made something this beautiful and this autobiographical is pretty rare. And it's it's the right time for him where his mastery of the medium and his ability to tell this very personal and um, deep story have uh, have intersected in in a very rare way. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk more about this movie. So I'll just leave it there. But I uh, absolutely loved it. And, um, and yeah, and, 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 you know, kind of torn between. There's no way to talk about how much I appreciated the chance to see this in the movie theater, in a big theater, without sounding like a terrible snob. And so I just, <laughs> I'm trying to, like, find the middle ground there. But, yeah, if you, if you have a chance to see it in any capacity, please do so. And I think Adam's warnings are well healed. Yeah, and if you want to hear our snobbery talk just send us an email and we'll give you a couple paragraphs on sound design and things. Like that. <laughs> All right. That about wraps it up for this episode. And for technical Jesus in 2018, if you like, if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Benefits of a Classical Education. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.